Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. We are recording this on Sunday, May 31st. It is 3 o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. With me, as always, Todd Plucknett, Zach Saltz. Uh, Zach, I see a, a change in beverage for you. What, what do you oh. have for us today? Uh, I have a brand new beverage to share with you today. This has been sitting in my refrigerator for about six months. Uh, I got it at my, uh, when, when my wife and I bought our house, we threw a party and uh, someone bought this for us and I forgot that about it until today. It is something called St. Bernadus um, About 12. It's a Belgian Abbey Ale with a picture of a very happy Abbey uh, like fryer on it. And apparently it is 12% alcohol. So, yeah. <laughs> Nice. Wow. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I hope you are this too. Gonna it's going to be a, fun. This is going to be a good recording. I know. Well, hey, this is an honor of you, Terry, because you've been going for the upper alcohol content uh, beer lately. So I one up you. I, I don't think you got a 12% alcohol yet. So uh, yeah, let's do this. I I do have an 11 and a half downstairs, but I, I went with the, the other growler today. Uh, Todd, what do you got? Uh, this is vodka and guava nectar, so it's going to be really easy to drink. Hopefully I don't get too drunk. <laughs> this is going to be great. <laughs> I can tell already. All right. Well, uh, we went and got our growlers filled again uh, this weekend. Um, uh, if, you, if you're on the in my neck of the woods, which is uh, west end of Portland, Oregon... Uh, Ridgewalker Brewery, uh, the location we go to is in Forest Grove. I think there's one or two others. Awesome, awesome place. They do curbside service, so like you stop outside, you give them a call, they come out. They actually gave us a free car wash for filling our growlers when we went there too. Uh, anyways, so I have the Haze Walker Hazy IPA. It's a 6.7. Like I said, I've got one. They've got one called Notorious. That's an 11 and a half that I've that I opted out of but now that i see what you guys are drinking I, I think i may have made a mistake but i'm sticking with the hazy so uh so cheers cheers i'll drink to that all right well guys thank you so much for listening um uh, make sure that you uh subscribe rate review on itunes we're also on spotify uh find us on twitter at almost sideways is our main account and uh some of us have some personal ones as well that you can find. Uh, we also have a Facebook page you can uh, find as well. Uh, and again, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, there's so much craziness going on in our world. I'm so glad we have this outlet of distraction and uh, just kind of escape from all the all the chaos that's going on around us. Or we can just sit around and BS about movies for a couple hours. So I'm, uh, I'm excited about that. First thing we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been watching. Uh, we have a review to talk about of a fairly new movie that uh, was mentioned last week on our our seldom seen movie uh, countdown. And then we got a deep dive for you of a classic comedy uh, from 15 years ago. So, Todd, I'm going to go to you first. What uh, what are you did you watch this week? Uh, so, 
Uh, I caught on TCM yesterday a movie that I've been trying to watch for quite a while because it was the most recent Best Picture nominee that I hadn't seen. It's from 1960. It's called The Sundowners, directed by Fred Zinneman, and it's got a really cool cast like Deborah Kerr, uh, Peter Ustinov, and uh, Robert Mitchum. They play a family of sheep herders going across Australia, and like the son and the mother want to like settle down somewhere, and the father wants to keep going. It's kind of a, a um, a slow, drawn-out movie. It's beautifully shot. It's not exactly a great movie. It's two and a half stars, but I just uh, wanted to mention it, not just because it's the 60th anniversary, but because I want to brag that I've now made it that far through all the Best Picture nominees. And I ha now I have my most recent one I haven't seen is from 1952, which is, like, impossible to see. And, and uh, after that one, I will have 75 years completed. But I don't know when I'm going to wow. be, ever be able to see John Huston's Moulin Rouge because it's never on and it's not on video. You should, like, write into TCM or something and say, hey, I haven't seen this one. You should play it at some point because no one else does. I should. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, Zach, how about you? Uh, I did not watch anything new this week. I, like many Americans, was glued to my TV, <laughs> CNN at night. Um, but I did think it did remind me of a movie that I have watched and I know Todd has seen too. And it's, I think one of the best and most underrated or under, um, analyzed, uh, documentaries ever made. And it's the winner of the 2001 best documentary award at the Oscars. And it's called murder on a Sunday morning. I know Todd and I've talked about this movie before. Um, yep. The reason I bring it up is because, like Terry said, you know, we're, we're living in a society that uh, where, where systematic institutionalized racism is, is finally being discussed uh, in, an, in an open forum. I mean, if there's any sort of productive um, analysis of what's going on this week, it's that we're, we're talking about these issues. It does seem like we talk about them every once in a while and then we forget about them. Um, this is a documentary that is uh, was made by a French filmmaker named Jean-Xavier de Lestrade, and it's about a 14-year-old boy in Jacksonville, Florida, who was put on trial for a murder that he most obviously did not commit. I mean, it, it basically shows the corruption of the police force, the white police force, in the first 30 minutes of this movie. It, it, it doesn't add up at all that this kid uh, committed this murder. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and his skin was the wrong color. Um, I can't think of another movie that is both a portrait of the racial tension and injustice that exists in America, but also is a movie that is hopeful. Um, it, I think it actually shows, without going too much into the movie, it shows how the criminal justice system makes can't is capable of making mistakes but can amend those mistakes because by the end of the movie the right things happen and we have a public defender who defends this young man in court and it's uh it's the right thing i mean it's someone who does not get paid a lot of money to do his job but he kicks ass at it and he's a hero in this movie his name is patrick uh, mcginnis and um this is a movie that's free on youtube to watch i don't know why it doesn't have more publicity around it i think it's one of the best documentaries ever made um and uh, it's absolutely Absolutely uh, perfect for the moment that we are living in right now. So I encourage everyone listening, all three listeners, go on YouTube, watch Murder on a Sunday Morning because it is outstanding. Very nice, very nice. I've not seen that one, but uh, if I keep up what I'm doing now, I'll I'll watch it sometime next year because it'll be. Uh, you should watch it years. now. You should watch it now. This week, everyone should watch it now. It's a great movie. 
It actually, hey. uh, the injustice in it is horrible, but it, it, it reaffirms your hope in the United States, which is corny and trite, but very few movies, especially few documentaries, do that, and this, this one does. All right, all right. Uh, the movie that I watched this week uh, was my anniversary movie of the week, is what I'm going to talk about, and it was from 2000. It was nominated for Best Foreign Film. Actually, it was a 2001 American release, and it's called Divided We Fall out of the Czech Republic. Uh, it is a uh, World War II Holocaust-type story. Um, it's about a, a couple who uh, take in a a local uh, Jewish boy who had escaped a concentration camp and made it back home. And uh, they take him in and hide him. And he ends up eventually working for uh, for the SS to try and hide the fact that he is hiding this this escaped prisoner. It's it's kind of a quirky movie. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a comedy, um, but it definitely has some moments that make you laugh. they have a a friend that they really hate but always comes around and they have to let him because he is a member of the SS now and has has jumped full on into being a Nazi and uh he always seems to come around and uh and just is ridiculous and he he gets a few laughs um yeah I, i'm giving it 3 stars it's like i said it's a very interesting movie i, I mean you've got You've got comedies about the topic like Life is Beautiful and Jojo Rabbit. It's not that, but it's also not Schindler's List. It's somewhere in between where it's got these little quirky, almost slapstick moments. But then the rest of the time, it's very, um, it, it's somewhat intense at times as you as you see everything that's going on and the, what they are going to have to go through to hide this, uh, this man's uh, existence in their house. So uh, yeah, three-star movie, really good one. Uh, divided we fall have either of you guys seen this one i have not i have not see i'm catching all these movies that none of us have seen i really like it and all the ones that i should have seen a long time ago and haven't too so there's that all right so those are that's what we've been uh watching this week and now it's time to talk about like i said a, a somewhat new movie it has a 2020 release it's on netflix right now and it came up last week because of its uh, low amount of ratings on IMDb. Last week we did our our uh, countdown of the best movies with under a thousand votes, and a movie that all of us predicted, or you guys predicted, I didn't predict, that uh, was potentially going to be on Adam's list was a movie called Uppity, the Willie T. Ribs Story. And then we talked about how none of us had seen it, so we decided, you know what? We should watch this movie. Uh, so, uh, I'll go ahead and talk about this one first. This is a documentary about Willie T. Ribs, the first African-American, uh, race car driver to qualify for the Indy 500. And it really follows his career from the late seventies to the early nineties as he fights to try and break into, uh, an all white sport and be this pioneer, be this groundbreaker. He is, um, he is the main, really the main narrator of the entire, uh, of the entire movie as he's the one telling his story. Um, and you see him go through, uh, he goes to Europe and, and goes through some of the, the minor leagues of formula one in some ways. He, he does some of the, uh, some stock car racing in, in the United States. He tries to break into NASCAR, but realizes there's no way to break into a Southern sport like that as a black man in the eighties or seventies. Um, and then eventually try works his way up, um, to being, um, 
to being in the Indy 500 in the early 90s. Uh, I'm surprised I'd never heard of this guy before um, because it's he is such a groundbreaking character. He's a very, um, very, uh, how, do, how do you say it? boisterous i mean he, he's very out there and um which made him makes him kind of unique i mean you think about the groundbreaking figures in sports and you think about guys like jackie robinson and and uh arthur ash and tiger woods and guys like that that break the color barrier and and break down walls are these more quiet reserved uh types that that just keep their head down and and get through it that's not willie t ribs and honestly he probably didn't get near as far as he could have because of that um and and maybe we would have heard of him more but uh you you realize how big of a deal he was when you start to hear the different names that he encounters in the 80s i mean as he's going through the 80s he becomes friends with muhammad ali don king and bill cosby i mean are you gonna are there any three more iconic 80s african-american figures than those three Michael and Jackson. he he well he, he, well okay fine um but when you're talking when you're talking about just what he's what he was going through and to, to talk to these three guys and that really have uh have interactions with them was really fascinating um I would have liked to hear from a little bit more of a varied group of people on him. I mean, it's really him telling his story. Uh, there are maybe two inter interviews of other people that actually interact with him throughout the story. You got Wally Dallenbach, who is awesome to see in there. Um, for someone who used to watch NASCAR in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was good to see his name. And then you also had a former um, a former teammate of his. I'm missing his name right now. Um, oh, David Hobbs are really the only other interviewees that actually interact with him. The rest just kind of talk about him in general and talk about the scenarios that he's in at the time. I would have liked to see a little bit more firsthand account um, because you also kind of see potentially that Willie T remembers his story through slightly altered lens. Um and so just to have a little bit more of like fact checking from different angles, I would have liked. Um, but it, it was a really fascinating story. Um, I'm going to give it two and a half stars because like I said, you, you want to have a little bit more firsthand account, especially if you're talking about something that was just, just, uh, just in the eighties. It wasn't that long ago, but it was, like I said, it was good to see people like Alan Sir Jr. interviewed and, and you got some bigger names, but some more that, uh, that would have been, uh, definitely a part of the the narrative would have been good to see. Uh, Zach, how about you? Okay, so, um, gosh, uh, I guess I will counter that. I'm glad you went to me next because I don't entirely disagree with you overall about the movie. Um, I disagree with your criticism, though. In fact, my criticism is the exact opposite. I almost wish that uh, the movie had focused more on T Willie T. Ribs. I, I felt like there were too many... Um, too many extraneous people in the story that I didn't feel were totally necessary uh, for it. Um, I, I all right, I kind of agree with that because it felt like they were trying to find people to talk about him, but couldn't find the right people, so they settled on who they had. I, I wanted I wanted more people that actually like 
Well, Jack Roush would have been a great one to have a, as a part of this, and and he's not there. Yeah. And listen, I mean, I don't, I don't know these people. I didn't watch, I don't watch NASCAR, so I don't know all these people by name. But you know, you got the, you got the 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 fat guy who talks about, you know, the, the uh, he explains everything with engines and motors, and then you got uh, you, the, the the other driver that was going against him, who you already mentioned, and then you got you got a nice appearance by Caitlyn Jenner in this movie, kind of out of nowhere. You didn't even mention. Yeah, that was out of nowhere. <laughs> I, I forgot about that. You're right. Um, yeah. I, I like that. Uh, no, I um, look. I mean, this movie is uh, yin and yang. Uh, on the one hand, it is about uh, something that I have zero interest in, which is NASCAR racing. I had some really horrible PTSD flashbacks to Ford v Ferrari watching this movie. That was like, wow, get me out of this. I just do not care. I also thought this movie was probably about like at least 30 minutes too long. I, I I mean, but on the other hand, I can understand why, like, this movie really gets bogged down in details and the, uh, the sort of institutionalized mechanisms that he has to go through in order to get to that IndyCar test, which by the end of the movie is fantastic. I think the last 20, 25 minutes of this movie are, are the strongest, which is always a sign of a good movie when it gets better and better. I just think the, 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 the sort of um, bureaucratic ways that he has, that, that he has to, um, kind of the obstacles that he has to overcome take up too much of a percentage of this movie. So there were times when I was just a little bit tuned out about the details of you know Formula Four versus Formula Three versus Star Car Racing versus the the, the, the Trans Am Racing versus the Buick engine, all that stuff. Yeah, whatever. I, I did especially though like how essentially what what this movie is saying is kind of what you what you alluded to, Terry. Um, it was racism, but not necessarily overt racism. What what these companies did by refusing to sponsor him was, you know, it, it was it was not waving necessarily a Confederate flag. It was saying, well, when you do the Muhammad Ali shuffle on top of your car, you're not going to get uh, sponsorship. And, of course, that's just, you know, it's coded racism. It's racist rhetoric, but coded in this kind of strategic corporate language of, you know, we're not going to sponsor you. So I thought that part was really interesting. And I do, I guess, at a fundamental level, understand why they went into all the detail and depth about getting to the indie, uh, indie uh, uh, what is it, the test race or whatever, because he had a lot of obstacles to overcome. I just felt like the movie could have shredded about 20 to 30 minutes of it to make it a more interesting visual, uh, you know, movie experience. But I give this movie three stars. I agree with you. I'd never heard of Willie Tewers before. I'm not a big race car person, obviously, but I think he's an important figure. Um, I think he's pretty interesting to watch on camera because he tells it like it is. I mean, he talks about, you know, uh, how he's going to stick it to people and how much bullshit he had to endure. He doesn't, um, he, he doesn't mince words. He's really direct. And so as a, as an interview subject, I think he's pretty interesting. I also like the visual language of this documentary. I thought it was actually really well done. They did a lot of stuff with like the parallax effect where they took those old pictures and they had the foreground of the picture kind of move in a forward direction while keeping the background still the same. I actually kind of teach that to my students. I might use this as an example for that. Um, so actually as a documentary, it was really well put together. I'm a little surprised that it doesn't have more notoriety and more kind of recognition because it, it is actually pretty pretty aesthetically uh, good, good looking. Um, three star movie, uh, nice call, Adam. I've never heard of this movie either. Willie T. Ribs uh, deserves more recognition. It was a good experience watching it. All right, all right, and you make some good points. I'm I'm right on that two and a half three star bubble. I'm not. Uh, yeah, Look for me. A, not... For me, a three star movie is. I'm glad I saw it and I will remember it and I will remember Willie T. Ribs after seeing this movie. <laughs> And you fell asleep less like than I'll... three times. I did fell, fall asleep less than three times. I did have to watch it in two different installments because, like I said, it got a little boring in the middle. But, listen, I hate NASCAR, and I watched this movie. So I think that's, that's an accomplishment. <clears throat> 
and and I'll say I'll remember Willie T. Ribs. I don't necessarily know if I'll remember the documentary. That's fair. I, I'll remember the story, but not necessarily the movie. All right, Todd, where are you at on this? Uh, we're all kind of on the same page, but I mean, for me, I I thought. I mean, the subject is compelling, but I honestly think he is boring as hell to listen to get interviewed. That, I thought that was the main problem. It was He took way less time to get boring than Michael Jordan did in The Last Dance. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, like, about halfway through, I was like, why am I still listening to him? Like, the old archival footage was awesome. Like, him talking shit to everybody, that was the kind of thing I wanted to see. And the old racing footage, is, uh, I mean, that was pretty cool. And I don't know. I, I wish they had committed more to the, the showing rather than the telling. And because yeah, the, the other people that got interviewed, it was fun to see their faces, but like they, none of them really had anything that interesting to say. I the best part I thought was when he, they were, had to raise money with Bill Cosby. That was the only thing I thought that like brought it above like the heap of like amateurish documentaries. This is a subject that should have been like a Disney like narrative movie. It should have been like like a Invincible or The oh Express. Oh my god! No. Like one of, oh, I'm one sorry. Of those, no way. I'm sorry. One of those, Go like, on. yeah, what, I don't know, one, one of those, like, PG movies that, like, uh, that, like, people would actually have seen, because now, I mean, this is kind of a slog, and it's immediately forgettable, and that's why no one's heard of Willie T. Ribs, is because this is what we get from a movie of him, I mean, it could have been a, a, a solid, some sort of Disney movie, I, I give this movie two stars. Oh my god. No! <laughs> That's terrible. No Disney. My, my favorite story from... I got two things. My favorite story from this movie was, um, was the street race between Willie T and Wally Dallenbach that became... that was ripped off in Days of Thunder. I thought that was really cool. And, um, Zach, after you mentioned Ford v. Ferrari, David Hobbs would totally be played by Christian Bale in a movie. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's British. Would it require a significant weight gain, though? No, just the weight loss. Like, look, think about Christian Bale and Ford v. Ferrari. That basically is David Hobbs. I don't know. I feel like Daniel Bruhl would be a better David Hobbs. but eh. Another race car driving actor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, th- I would say that um, with no matter what you think of the movie, I think all of us agree that this story is worth knowing and it's worth telling. So, uh, I see like, it like, like this. I said, it should not have been told like this. <laughs> What I love about this this segment that we've just done is I think the three of us agree probably closer than we've ever agreed on a movie before. And yet we're all giving it different star ratings because we interpret the star rating system differently. Like, uh, yeah, I, I don't disagree with everything Todd said, except the Disney part. That's ridiculous. There's no way this should be a Disney movie. But, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'll give it to him. But, I, you know, I thought this was a good use of 149 minutes of my life. No, it was hour an hour too long. It was it was too long, but that's okay. <laughs> How is that? Look, uh, I, I see. I Most don't, I don't have long. like a fl- a three star floor for documentaries. Like if the if the movie if it's a good subject, that doesn't mean it's going to be a good movie regardless, just because it's a documentary. I, I, this is an important I, I, story, though. The director put in time and effort to find that archival footage to interview all those people and to make it look cool with the parallax effect. Everyone puts I, effort into movies, but no, like, that's not I, true. I mean, not true at all. It's just because it's a, it wouldn't be you wouldn't have watched the movie if it wasn't a good story. And so, like your your floor for documentaries is three stars. That's bullshit. <laughs> Why are you even so what? So what? (laughs) Who cares? Documentaries deserve recognition. This was a good movie. I would much rather watch this movie than Ford v Ferrari. Can 
Can we also say how random it is that the co-director of this movie is Adam Carolla? Well, see, but he did he did the documentary about Ford v. Ferrari before the actual Ford v. Ferrari. So, like, he has this kind of background in uh, in producing documentaries that are much better than narrative films, like bullshit Disney movies, about these same topics. I can't believe that. That's, uh, that's like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> what? That's I mean, terrible. They, they make these kind of movies all the time. The, the 42 and The Express, and like those like untold stories of sports history. Like th- That is exactly where this movie lives. But, I mean, instead we get just like this boring documentary that they put on Netflix. Todd, I will you, say you, this would be a this would be a good narrative movie. Okay, I don't know if but, about going the PG Disney route, but you know, it would be a good narrative. Todd, movie. you know that if this movie was turned into a Disney movie, it would star Chadwick Boseman, and then we would get on this podcast and you'd trash his acting, like you always do. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say I would like the movie. I'm saying that that would have been a like a better approach to getting this uh, this subject told to audiences. Whatever. We're all in agreement. Just you know. For the most part, I mean, we all we're all kind of saying the same thing. The movie it the movie itself is okay, but the story is really good and important. And that, I think that's that's what we're all saying. And just right. how much stock we put in the actual storytelling of the movie is what's affecting our our rating. And let's remember the most important thing about this movie. Adam Daly said this is one of the best movies people have never seen, like one of the five best movies under a thousand views. So it wasn't I on his list. A, yes, it was. It was number four. On his That's list. where we put it. Wasn't it on his list? That it was I the one. It movie, was not on his the list. The only one it we was got the movie right was number you guys, one. This was the movie you guys uh, thought was going to be on his four, list. I Can I also just say that immediately after our podcast last week, I texted Adam and said, "What? What the hell, man? Where's the chic? All right, <laughs> I'm not going to spend hours of my life looking through our website, through the through the archives, and I found a three and a half star movie." under a thousand votes and you didn't even put it on your goddamn list and he said yes if he had remembered that movie he would have put it on so just gonna put that out there for for adam i know you're listening right now come on man the chic it's a classic well and uh since we're talking about our our list from last week one of the things that uh we're gonna be doing on our twitter account at almost sideways i'm gonna be spotlighting uh all of the movies that we uh talked about last week as they are movies that not many people see so it is our uh our hashtag seldom seen spotlight and uh you can uh, find them on there the first one went up today and uh, i'll be putting up one each day for the next couple weeks so you guys can see all the movies we talked about and uh let's try and get all of them up over a thousand views how awesome would that be if we if we could influence it to the point that we get all these up over a thousand views and this one although it wasn't on any of our lists i think is one that we should also be promoting get up over a thousand views for uppity uh, it's at 391 right now, so it would take quite a bit. And not views, ratings on IMDb. That's what we're going by there. So uh, watch this movie rated on IMDb. Um, because like, like all of us have said, it's a story worth knowing, um, regardless of how, how good the storytelling is. I mean, do you know how right. hard it must have been? I'm sorry, I'll just make this last point. It must have been, I think, hard to make this movie, okay? Getting all those people together, talking about a controversial figure who was pretty disliked and institutionally, you know, disadvantaged and prejudiced against. And to have all those people, including Caitlyn Jenner, get on camera and talk about this guy, I think is, is an impressive feat. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about him, just as a character, is 
I think he would have been unliked regardless of skin color. Like, he was just one of those characters that just was, you know, tossing the rules, the unwritten rules to the wind, and that doesn't go over well in a sport like that, that is seeped in that much tradition. So I, th- I think he would have been disliked regardless of skin color, but then you add in the fact that he was trying to break ground as the first African-American to do all these different things. It, it, his his career was doomed before it even got started simply because of the personality he had. But if he had one more, I think that he would have been po- popular. He could have been Tiger Woods because, I mean, th- that's, a, that's a similar thing with that sport. But, I mean, he didn't win enough. Like, I mean, his uh, personality is basically like Tony Stewart. And Tony Stewart's super popular because... He is brash, and because he wins, same with Kyle Busch. Like that's what that that is why they are. That's why they're popular. But I mean, if Willie T. Ribs had won some races, which he didn't, he didn't have any professional wins. Uh, then I mean that that's why no like people just were trying to push him out. Well, it, because he kept on getting undermined by his sponsors, obviously, and and his you know his obviously he couldn't raise enough money to get a good motor. But Terry, remember that part of the movie where they show I can't remember the names, but like Al Unser Jr. or whatever, all these different race car drivers had their signature move. So it's not that there weren't there wasn't flamboyance in the sport. It was just that Willie T. Ribs was a black man getting on top of his car. That's what they didn't like about it. But you know, I, I think I'm, I'm thinking more more of the uh, not necessarily that, but more of the, the the fighting with the owners and not being afraid to speak his mind. I mean, it for someone in a situation like that. Like I said, the the most successful people to break ground in those instances are the people who just who are are quieter and have that quiet strength that is able to push through all those obstacles that are going to come in their way. And Willie T. Ribs just didn't have that, and so he he didn't know what was he didn't know how to advance his career without being him. So, anyways, let's move on. Uh, like we said, that movie is on Netflix, uh, and definitely check it out. It's a, it's a really important story to know. Okay, it's time for our deep dive. And this week, like I said, at the top, we are celebrating the 15th anniversary of a comedy classic. And that classic is The 40-Year-Old Virgin. How can you go 40 years and not have sex? I just kind of stopped trying. We got to help the man. We cannot let you go on being a virgin. I'm sorry. You got to highlight your attributes. Just wax that whole Teen Wolf thing off. No! Kelly Clarkson! Help! I hate you! Stop smiling! You look like a man-o'-lantern. The, uh writing in or the directorial debut of uh judd apatow uh we're going to be talking all things 40 year old virgin for the rest of this podcast i'm really excited uh this is an amazing movie uh zach you are hosting trivia to start us out so uh tell us what we're doing how we're doing this we're gonna start with todd first because todd always goes second and this time we're gonna change things up and make him go first so terry you got this like the third time you've gone first now todd Third time in a row or something like that. And the last time was the first time I had gone second and Wait, no, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, last time was the first time I had gone first in forevers. But, yeah. Okay. That's whatever. All right. So, should Terry go first? No, we'll just go Todd first. All right, that's fine. That's fine. We'll go Todd. Todd first. All right. (sighs) A Disney movie. Good God, man. What is your problem? I'm not... I was trying to get it reviewed and get it in libraries. (laughs) Get it out there, man. Screw the publishers. Let the public decide. 
Okay, I have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 questions worth 15 points. Can you handle that? All right. (sighs) Okay, I'm pulling for for you. I don't know why. All right. What is the first preview on the unrated DVD edition of this movie? (laughs) I don't watch the previews on DVDs. Um... It's the most mid-2000s thing ever that you would find on a DVD like this. That's my hint. Wedding Crashers. Cl- yeah, not a bad guess, uh, but the answer is American Pie Bandcamp. Oh, that Come makes on, sense. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. How old was Judd Apatow when this movie was released? And uh, I, will, I will, again, go on a, on a scale, whoever is closer between you and Terry. I'm going to go 41. Okay, Todd, you say 41. We will find out who gets the point for that after Terry gives his answer. Whose voice would David rather listen to for eight hours than Michael McDonald? Fran Drescher. Fran Drescher is correct. Okay, uh, who, what does Andy drink at the poker game? Uh, like Fanta? Orange Fanta? Orange Fanta is correct. Name of the erotic perfume on the bus eruption eruption nice nice job it's actually on two buses technically um yeah what it gets bigger it, yeah it does get bigger it erupts what is the name of the nightclub that andy and the guys go to i i have no idea nine dollar really? beer night i almost didn't put this question on because i thought it was so easy um, the correct answer is the Shade Lounge. Okay. Okay, so... I can picture the shot. I, I mean, I just wouldn't, I would never remember the name. This is a two-part question worth two points. What is the book and the author that Beth, played by Elizabeth Banks, is setting up in the window of the bookshop? Oh, man. Yeah, I... The Remains of the Day. I have no idea. <laughs> First of all, teenagers do not read that book, okay? <laughs> but that is not the correct answer. The correct answer is Black Wind by Clive Cussler, which is a total Matt Gertzen book. Gertzen, if you're listening, you probably read that book. Okay, another two-part question. I like when... the question, though. Damn. Thank you. Uh, two-part question. When David and Cal are playing Mortal Kombat, who are the characters that they are playing? In the video game, Mortal Kombat. I, I don't think I've ever actually looked at the top of the screen on that before. Well, no, no, no. It says it says when he rips his head off, and you know, you can uh, see you can see the names of the characters. I, I have no idea what they are. The correct answer is Sub Zero, uh, which Cal plays, and Baruka, played by David. If I had ever played Mortal Kombat, I could have at least had a guess, but I have not. Yeah. You'll get this one, though. Who is the $6 million man's boss? Oscar Goldman. Good call. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) That that was my favorite question. Uh, What is the name of Paula's Guatemalan gardener? Francesco? No. 
Uh, it is a similarly Latin name, though. It is Javier. Javier. And then the fi- the final question worth... Uh, I'm going to make this worth two points just because... I'll say in a second. Um, what kind of a bike does Trish buy for Andy? And the reason I'm going to make this a two-part question it, or two-point question is because it's the same kind of bike that I have. <laughs> it's actually a really similar... I, rewatching this movie, like the bike is almost the exact same bike that I have. Uh Man, I I couldn't even guess. I'm I have no idea. All right, it is a Trek bike. So you have a total of 4 points, man. That is a disappointment. 4 out of 15. 4 out of well, 16. 16. <laughs> I decided to audible at the last minute. Um, but and I might I might get another one, right? You might get another one. That's true. <coughs> All right. All right. All right, Terry. You actually have a fighting chance in this battle. That That's rare when we're talking trivia against Todd. Yeah. So either I made these questions way too hard or Todd does not know this movie as much as we thought. Uh, out of a possible 16 points, Todd only got four points. Oh, wow. Okay. So all you need is to answer the first, I guess, five questions correctly, and, and you are golden. Okay. Here that's we, all. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, you probably won't, but that's okay. All right. What is the first preview on the unrated DVD edition of this movie? Bandcamp. Yes! Yes! What a great answer. <laughs> I don't watch previews. <laughs> oh, I always watch the previews of the DVD. <laughs> that was amazing, Terry. Great job. Okay. Um, how old was Judd Apatow when this movie was released? Now, we're going to go whoever, um, whoever's closer. Todd had a guess. We'll, we'll say what your guess is, and we'll go whoever's closer. 38. All right, Terry said 38. Terry gets the point. Uh, Judd Apatow was only 37 when this movie came out. <clears throat> wow. You are halfway there, Terry. Can you believe it? Okay. Can't believe it. Whose voice would David rather listen to for eight hours than Michael McDonald's? Oh, Fran Drescher. Fran Drescher is correct. What is what is the drink that Andy drinks at the poker game? Uh, he's doesn't he have like a Coke? That is incorrect. He has an orange Fanta. Get it right. Oh, I was thinking. I was thinking of a his first date. I think he had a Coke. No, his first date. No, never mind. Something else he had was drinking a Coke. Never but mind. isn't an orange Fanta sort of a perfect Andy drink? It is a perfect Andy drink. He was wearing an orange sweater. That's true. It was like a, it was like orange triangle in the middle of gray argyle. All right. You only need two more points, Terry. You can do this. <laughs> what is the name of the, ex- the erotic perfume on the bus? Oh, Eruption. Eruption is correct. We have a tie game. With six questions left. Um, what is the name of the nightclub that Andy and the guys go to? I don't know if I ever saw the name. I have no clue. The answer is the Shade Lounge. I almost didn't put that question in there because I thought it was too easy. All right. Uh, this is a two-part question. What is the name of the book that Beth, played by Elizabeth Banks, is setting up in the window of the bookstore? 
The name of the book? And the author. Two parts. Oh, the uh, well, the author was Clive Cussler. I noticed that right away. That is correct. Um, it was a blue and white cover. I mean, oh, I think we even own that book because my <laughs> wife is a huge Clive Cussler fan. Uh, I'm going to say, like, Pacific Pirates. That's wrong. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good guess. Almost, I almost want to give you a half point for that because that, that sounds like a Clive Cussler book. But the answer... Doesn't it? it? <laughs> the answer is Black Wind, which I also said to Todd is a total Matt Gertzen book. I mean, he, he would be reading that book, too. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I don't know. He only read Clancy. That's true, but he also... It, he was a fan of that <laughs> genre. <laughs> yeah. Okay, when David and Cal are playing Mortal Kombat, the video game, uh, what are the characters that they are playing as? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Um, yeah, I've never... I've, like, played Mortal Kombat once in my life, so I don't even know... have good guesses of the characters. I, I mean, I can give you the deaths. One of them, like, ripped the torso out, and the other one ripped off his head and threw it at a frozen body. All right, well, you already, I don't... You, you already won anyway, but that's, that's, that's excessive, but we'll take it. Uh, the answer is Cal plays as the character Sub-Zero, and David plays as Baruka. Okay. Baruka ta adonoi adahenu malakalam. Yeah, okay. Uh, who is the $6 million man's boss? Oh... Nope, not going to remember it. The answer is Oscar Goldman. Todd got that question. Oscar. Well, because oh. I, I know all the lines in the movie. I don't know what's in the background. I'm not, I don't even know who Clive Cussler is. Like, I mean, what, what is this shit? <laughs> <laughs> what is the name of Paula's Guatemalan gardener? Oh, is it like Pablo? Close. It is Javier. Neither That's of us not were close. close. <laughs> well, you said Francesco. <laughs> You said that was close. I'm like, what? <laughs> Whatever. All right. Uh, and then the final question, which I made worth two points because, well, I'll tell you in a second. What kind of bike does Trish buy for Andy? And I made it a two-point qu- two question because it is uncannily similar to the bike that I actually have. <laughs> I have no clue. The answer is a Trek, which is a really good brand of bike. Terry is the champion. Wow. Well, hey. Five to four, man. The the king is dead. <laughs> I never win the, the deep dive trivia. That I is kind of The last one I won was Boiler Room. I rarely ever play deep dive trivia, so. <laughs> All right, well, then uh, let's get into it. 40-year-old virgin. I win, so I get to talk about it first. So like I said before, this is directorial debut of Judd Apatow. Uh, it's really one of the movies that, that kind of put this whole crew of guys on the map, uh, especially Steve Carell. Um, in fact, the, there's a lot of stories out there that, that say that the, the popularity of this movie is one of the main reasons that The Office was picked up for a second season, because it wasn't going to be, and then Steve Carell became this huge star because of this movie. Uh, and yeah, we follow Andy... Uh, who is the titular character in this um, as he uh, reluctantly ends up revealing that he uh, is indeed a virgin to his his friends, David J. and Cal, and uh, they make it their mission to try and help him uh, remove this title from his from his name. And it, it is hilarious, but it's also a movie with an incredible amount of heart. Um, I think I saw this movie in in theaters when it first came out. Uh, 
and I watched it um, last night for the first time in in several years, and I think it still really holds up well. Um, it it's a like I said, a really funny movie, but it, it also the it, when Apatow is at his best, he he makes you laugh for like the first two thirds of the movie, and then almost makes you cry for the last third, and that's what he does really well here. So um, I've always loved this movie. I, I think it I think it's great. Uh, Zach, how about you? Yeah, uh, I saw this movie at Lloyd Center in Portland, Oregon. It came out August 19th of 2005. Very interesting time in my life. That was like one week before my freshman year of college started and where I met the famous Terry Plucknett. Um, yeah, I... I hadn't even met you yet, but No, man. no, I, ha- I hadn't met you either. I rode my bike to go see this movie, just like Andy would have. And it was not a trek. It was a shitty bike. Um, I love this movie. I would have never seen it were it not for Ebert's enthusiastic three, three and a half star review of it, which I think actually holds up really well. And uh, yeah, it's, it is a comedy classic. Um, sometimes on this podcast, uh, we are known to kind of reanalyze these movies and say in a very kind of um, Monday morning quarterback context, oh, it's not as good as it used to be and blah, blah, blah. And we can talk about why in 2020 it doesn't work. This movie was awesome. I mean, I loved watching it again. I'll just I'll just, you know, say it out there. It's, it's a great movie. I actually think like a great wine, it improves with age. It's very funny, probably funnier than even the first time I saw it back in 2005. Um, so, uh, it, it, yeah, it, it's an awesome movie. Introduced a lot of this cast to the world. Steve Carell, I think, was still relatively unknown back in 2005. I mean, he had been on, on the, on the, uh, what, uh, the John Stewart show and in Anchorman. And the, a little show called The Office was just getting started. But uh, he's amazing in this movie. And it introduced the world of Judd Apatow, too. So it's, it's a classic, seminal mid-2000s movie. And the unrated DVD is a seminal dvd of the mid-2000s that everyone owns yeah when i when i put on uh on facebook and twitter that we were watching this i said it's available to rent digitally everywhere however who doesn't own this dvd because it's it's just one of those that everyone everyone has all right todd how about you well freaks and geeks undeclared was what introduced Judd Apatow to the world but in films True. yeah it was this one and um I, I love this movie, too. I think it's my number seven in 2005. I'm almost positive this was the first R-rated movie I saw in a theater, because this came out, like, a month after I turned 17. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I've loved it since then. I, I, haven't, I hadn't watched it in, in at least a few years, or even any part of it in a few years. But uh, I love the characters. I think it's the best ensemble cast of 2005. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's one of the great comedy movies, and it really kind of changed the way people tell stories with comedies in the 2000s it was the first one that really had a whole bunch of heart while still being sort of like a, a gross out sex comedy yeah and, and zach i think you said something that was really interesting and i think it's true that it might have even been funnier watching it now than when it first came out and i think it's one that yeah definitely at different stages of your life different parts are funny like we definitely laughed at different things when we were 17 18 19 20 than we do now that we're, what, 32, 33, 34, 35, somewhere in there. So uh, it definitely is, it, different parts ring truer now than they did then. Well, it's because we're no longer virgins, and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> <laughs> so go. this movie does sit number three on our uh, on our overall site of 2005. Um, 
In fact, uh, right now, Zach, you're the only one that doesn't have it in your top ten. Well, I'm What's an asshole. I, it should have been. It should have been there. <laughs> you can always change it, dude. I would love to change it. <laughs> you should. You should. Uh, according to what I currently have, I mean, we, we've talked about this several times. Uh, crashes. Yeah, we're not. We're not talking about that. So. We're, that's that uh, never happened. That's fake news. But uh, anyways. I do want to talk a little bit about the 2005 Oscars, because this did not get an Oscar nomination, but there was some buzz that this might sneak into, like, original screenplay. Do you guys think this should have garnered any Oscar attention? Well, I know it was nominated at the Writers Guild for original screenplay, and one of the movies that took its place was Matchpoint, which I watched recently, too, and that does not hold up very well at all. That, that's kind of a ridiculous nomination at this point. Like The screenplay should have been nominated, for sure. And I think Catherine Keener was nominated for the wrong movie. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point, too. Yeah, I did see something. Um, I was looking through the IMDb trivia page, and it said that um, three of the three actors in this movie uh, ended up later on being Oscar nominated for different Bennett Miller movies. Because Catherine Keener was nominated for Capote, Jonah Hill was nominated for Moneyball, and Steve Carell was nominated for Foxcatcher. So, That's I thought amazing. that was interesting. <laughs> that is the most <laughs> random stat you could come up with. I mean, yeah, you look at Matchpoint is in there, Squid the Whale, I, I, I need to revisit because I, I was, all I remember about that is being disappointed by it. And, Me too. Uh, me too. And then you have Crash, Good Night, and Good Luck, and Syriana in there too. I mean, it could have it could have easily fit into this list. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you want to say Steve Carell for Best Actor, that was one of the strongest Best Actor lineups of all time. So I don't I don't think you're gonna get him into that. But yeah, it definitely deserved a deserved some mention and some uh, some possibility in there. Um, did it get any? Gold, always, it didn't get any Golden Globes attention either. I mean, this is sort of a classic Golden Globes movie too. It was, yeah, but yeah, you're right. It didn't get, it didn't get anything there either. It got, it made the AFI list of movies of the year. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's Appetite movies are pretty much ignored by the Golden Globes for whatever reason, other than Trainwreck and. And which is kind of the the odd one in his whole filmography, but all the other ones, I'm pretty sure, got zero nominations. Knocked up, and even his producing stuff like Super Bad, they get shut out. So I don't, I, I don't understand that. I remember back in 2005 when this movie came out. I remember watching. It was either Conan, I think it was Conan O'Brien, and Judd Apatow was on Conan O'Brien, but the main guest was Robin Williams. So it was Robin Williams came out. And then they had Judd Apatow come out. I tried to look up this clip on YouTube. Judd Apatow beats Robin Williams in being funny, okay? Judd Apatow was hilarious. And I remember thinking, even back in 2005, holy crap, this guy is really funny. Like, he is going to be really big these next 10, 20 years. And obviously, that that came true. I mean, anyone that can come on a, on a late night show like that and actually duel Robin Williams and even be funnier than him is, is impressive. Yeah, and and this was definitely, I mean, Judd Apatow really spurned this on, but it was this was the first of the this new generation of like kind of raunchy R-rated comedies, and I think all of us can. I, I still haven't seen it, but I think all of us can just kind of groan at the fact that the first one to actually get any recognition was Bridesmaids. 
Like, this didn't get any rec- awards recognition. Knocked Up didn't. Todd, I know you hate Bridesmaids. Yeah. Um, well, but that well, was, that was the one that broke through with the Oscars. Globe, right? Oh, that could be. But no Oscars attention for anything until Bridesmaids. Well, right. Tropic Thunder, too. But... Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, this was the movie that ushered people into thinking that th- these kind of movies were worth award consideration. We'll put it that way. And it's so funny because like you mentioned that the the trailer going into the DVD is for Bandcamp and you know what you had American Pie is this R-rated comedy that came out before but those are completely I, I feel like what Apatow does compared to other R-rated comedies it's in a completely different class because it has actual depth to it that other that other movies that are similar don't have. Well, the first American Anyways. Pie is a little bit, but that is also a high school movie, and that that always get, takes a backseat in awards. Yeah, well, and also, of course, Man Camp, as the preview noted, is a direct-to-DVD release. Yes. <laughs> it would, it would yes. not be anything else, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, by, by the way, Catherine Keener did win Best Supporting Actress at the uh, Boston Society of Film Critics for this Capote and The Ballad of Jack and Rose all came out in 2005. So, she had an amazing year that year. <clears throat> Can we also talk about the DVD for just a second? Okay, yeah. so, so I watched this. I, I got to preface this conversation because I watched the DVD. It is an unrated DVD. And back in the 2000s, what they did with DVDs is if you had an unrated cut, you would have the unrated cut on the DVD. You wouldn't have the theatrical release option. So what I'm talking about today, and I was very nervous about this during the trivia, is the is the unrated DVD, which is 20 minutes of extra footage which they put into that DVD. I don't, I can't, I can't distill what is the theatrical release and what is the unrated DVD. So actually, when I was coming up with the trivia, it was really hard to do that. The reason I think they kept that unrated cut. Uh, as it is in the DVD is because Apatow and Steve Carell and Jonah Hill and Paul Rudd and others have a commentary on that DVD, which I believe, I will stand by this, is one of the five greatest DVD commentaries of all time. It is absolutely fantastic. It is so good that my wife watched it. She never watches DVD commentary. She thinks they're bullshit. And you could act- it is so good that you could actually watch or listen to the commentary without watching the movie. And there are many times during the commentary when they are, they're not even talking about the movie. They're just kind of riffing. And it's, you know, it's basically all the stars in the movie. Jane Lynch is there. Uh, you got, uh, you know, all, all the, uh, Seth Rogen's there. It is awesome. It's one of the great commentaries of all time. Jonah Hill's awesome. in it. Yeah, Jonah Hill's there. Yeah, I mean Jane Lynch is there. You know, the uh, the only actor, main actor from the movie who isn't there is Catherine Keener. Um, but it is it is a great, truly awesome commentary where they you know they riff on each other, they bust each other's balls. They also talk quite a bit about um, who came up with the joke that is in the movie. This is clearly not a movie that just was a screenplay. I mean, this was totally improvised, and a lot of these ideas came from actors that weren't even in the scene. So, like for example, Paul Rudd came up with concepts that weren't even in the scenes that he was in. So it's it's totally a collaborative process, and it's it's awesome to listen to that that, that commentary. It's it's amazing. Highly recommend it. See that, well, that you can also... tell that they came that you can tell they came up with a process during this uh, during this and also like Anchorman before it that really 
rings true over and over and over again in all of their movies because they all have kind of a similar tone. Yeah, well, and yeah, they have several different things for each individual line but and that also does lead to a couple like really rough cuts like you could tell like when he's like hey 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 motherfucker and then they cut to like romany malco looking at steve carell and you could tell it's not what he just said but that's the next shot in the movie because and as their reaction i'm like okay so obviously he had a few different things he did as he was standing up in the bar but you know i don't know like that kind of thing is, is kind of weird but uh I think it works. They have the DVD extra feature, the Linerama, where they just like yeah. rattle off a whole, whole bunch of lines for for every situation. Some of them work better than others. Like Romani Malco has this one about how um, you have to go to the uh, you have to slay the hood rats before you get to the upper echelon hoe. And he's talking about how when you're golfing, you can't just be Tiger Woods on any course. You have to go to like the trashy courses to get your swing good before you could go on, go to like Augusta or something like that. I'm like, that was like a great point. Like this, like, really, that could have been in the movie. <laughs> I almost liked that better than his <laughs> what he had, but uh, you know. <laughs> I would also say that the unrated cut is actually worth watching. There are, I mean, a lot of movies have unrated cuts that are just kind of junk, and there's you can understand why it was cut. It was cut out of the DVD, but this is actually a, a relatively rare example of a movie where the unrated cut has some really funny shit in it. Like there are some scenes that are awesome, and 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 to a certain extent you can understand because the unrated cut now runs two hours and twenty minutes, and this is not. Forrest Gump, okay? We we got to shorten this movie a little bit. I understand that, but it is still really funny to watch, and uh, if you're a fan of this movie, it's it's totally worth checking out. I think my favorite deleted scene in this movie is when Jane Lynch and Seth Rogen are talking, um, and she's asking him to buy weed because she wants to get baked all week, and, and she talks... <laughs> and watch Gandhi. And then, and then they talk about how when you smoke that much weed, you get so hungry and eat a lot, and then when you watch Gandhi, you feel guilty for um eating as much as you're eating while watching him fast the whole time it it's it's a great exchange <laughs> yeah i don't think that was in the original cut i think that's one that that was cut out and there were yes. some that were cut short but yeah I, I don't know that's exactly what i'm saying i mean there are a lot of deleted scenes that are actually really funny yes you can understand why they had to trim them but they're still really funny and i think i think uh Jane Lynch is such a beautiful addition to this cast that isn't one of the regular Apatow people because she is just hysterical and can do things that really no other actress can do. And and she can she can riff and improv with the best of them too. Mm-hmm. And so having her in there and this was kind of this is what got her, you know, I mean she'd always been around but it really got her known by you know mainstream. And led to her being in something like Glee and having an iconic character there where she's just ridiculous as well and doing things that only she can do. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get let's get into this a little bit. And uh, this was this was one of the hardest things that the hardest ones we've ever done. Recasting the 40 year old virgin today It's 15 years old. So who are who would be in a movie like this if they were to make it today? And I, I found this task pretty much impossible because like you said this was such a collaborative effort that you could tell that these characters were written specifically for these people so so to find someone i mean you're not going to find someone that can do what seth rogan does because seth rogan is the only seth rogan i mean so anyways we we gave it a shot to see who we could uh who we could come up with here so uh, we're we're all recasting five the five main characters here: Andy, Jay, Cal, Dave, and Trish. 
and then we'll uh, if we've got any others, we can throw them out there too. So let's start with Andy. Um, and so this was originally played by Steve Carell. And this is this was a hard one because you got to find someone who has that has that innocence, yet is hilarious, but also you know you can't help but root for at the same time. And so I I, I always am particular on ages so i tried to find someone that was right around like 40 years old to go because i mean this it's it's in the title so i went with um a current snl cast member mikey day uh i thought he he'd be like perfect for this he's got the right look to him he's he's got that that kind of feeling of being able to play that innocent but and uh, also someone you would root for not quite like Steve Carell could, but I think it could work. So Mikey Day's my Andy. Todd, how about you? Uh, well, I thought this one was pretty easy. It's Bill Hader. I, he's he's a perfect Andy. Oh, that's good, yeah. too. And he's that's, already been in Avatar movies. And I also thought, because uh, uh, Beth says it, uh, Luke Wilson. Because why not? He looks just what? like Luke Wilson. <laughs> 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 All right, Zach, who do you have? Uh, I, I did a gimmick here um, because Terry didn't rank Adam's top movies under a thousand votes. I decided to recast this movie if it was made 40 years ago because it is a 40-year-old version. 40 years ago was 1980, okay? So if this movie had been made in 1980, I recast the whole movie, and I decided that the 40-year-old version, Andy Stitzer, would be played by none other than the up-and-coming SNL comic by the name of Chevy Chase. For a second, I thought you were going to say Bill Murray. <laughs> Bill Murray, no. No. Or Aykroyd. I mean, you could have gone with uh, several of those. You could have gone like the entire SNL cast. Maybe. Like that original cast but you as can, the entire... You can sort of understand though why I went the way I did, because Bill Hader is perfect. That, that's that's the answer. We there's no, yeah. other, there's no other pick. That's, you know, you can't improve that. That's perfect. Thank you. I... I I love I love what you did, Zach, and I'm really looking forward to what comes next. Okay, uh, let's the the next three. I mean, they all go together. We're just gonna do them all at the same time. Jay, Dave, and Cal, originally brought to us by Paul Rudd was David, uh, Romney Malco was Jay, Seth Rogen was Cal, and and they're the buddies. Uh, let's see here. So the first one I I found was Dave. Um, and I went with really just a guy I like to see in more stuff and he doesn't do more stuff. And that's Glenn Powell. Uh, he's, he's just awesome and he needs to be in more things. And he's just, he's just got one of those dynamic personalities. And I think he could be a lot of fun here. Uh, the next one I cast was Jay. And, uh, for Jay, I went with Daniel Kaluuya because I could, I could just see the, I mean, th- this would be such an interesting dynamic here of having that. And then, Oh, you're going to really like my Cal. Then you got Cal. And, um, and so my, my Cal, I mean, you got Seth Rogen. This is Seth Rogen's part here. I went with someone going for a resurrection of a career similar to like, like what, uh, Neil Patrick Harris did in Harold and Kumar. I'm going with Haley Joel Osment as Cal. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going, I'm going with it. It sucks, but everything's going to suck. Has Daniel Kaluuya ever been funny? I've never heard him say anything funny in a movie. Can he do comedy? We're, we Get out was uh, listed as a comedy. Remember? It was a comedy, according to the Golden Globes. <laughs> but I he was the true. straight man, so... <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, I guess you could go with Lil Rel if you want to do that instead, but... All right, Todd. Who do you got as as the three the three amigos here? Todd, right, well, David, segment. I feel like was the easiest one to predict. Like I honestly, my first thought, if this was made forty years ago, when I was watching, I was like, this is a Steve Gutenberg role. And I also thought like mm-hmm. there are a lot of times when I feel like I'm listening to Jack Black when I when I when I watch it. But I went with Jay Duplass because he doesn't do enough stuff, and he, his character in Transparent is kind of like David, and I think he deserves a big movie at some point. So that's what I went with. What about the other two? Uh, so, Jay is really difficult because all, all I could think of was he was he's doing some Martin Lawrence impression the whole time. And I still, I, I just said, screw it. I'll just go with Martin Lawrence, even though he's way too old. And Cal, I feel like also is impossible because you can't get Seth Rogen's voice out of your head. So, I, I just said, my I went with my go-to guy. And it's either Lakeith Stanfield or Jesse Plemons. One of the two. <laughs> That's a give up. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is. At least I did something interesting. <laughs> All right, Zach, who do you got here? Who do you got? Well, I gotta say that Steve Gutenberg as David is perfect. I mean that 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 that, 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 was, that, that changes beautiful. my entire opinion. I will say my original actor uh, playing uh, David was a little-known actor from Chico, California. He was on the Love Boat. He was uh, in this TV show called Bosom Buddies. It's a young man named Tom Hanks. I think Yom Tong Hanks could have played this role and been awesome. However, the first time you mentioned Steve Gutenberg, I I really have to reevaluate that because that that's that's perfect casting. I think Hanks I is mean, too Paul young. Paul Rudd though. is Steve Gutenberg. He might have he might have been a little young. I I agree. I don't know how old Steve Gutenberg is, but that's that's inspired casting right there. Um, for my role of Cal, I thought about um, someone who is unkempt and hairy, and you could possibly see as someone who smokes pot all day. And I went with none other than uh, someone who American audiences knew and love uh, from All in the Family, and that was young Rob Reiner, because he is hairy and not attractive, and you could see him as a pot smoker, and he's pretty awesome. And he, could, I he thought could... you were going to say uh, Peter Simonishek. <laughs> I do, we do not know if he was hairy and a pot smoker back in 1980, but the odds are he probably was. I don't know if he could have mastered English in quite the way, but y- you never know. And then uh, for my role of uh, Jay, I decided, you know, the f- first instinct was Richard Pryor, but that would have been too big. He would have been too big a star in 1980 to cast as a supporting player. So I think you would have had to go with someone up and coming. I went with none other than Dag, David Allen Greer, right before the pinnacle of his success. And uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. See, I say I say you just go with like the entire original cast of uh, of SNL. Like you, you go Chevy Chase as your as your Andy. You go your, uh, you go Dan Aykroyd and uh, Dan Aykroyd probably and, should be in this cast. I I would agree. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd and um, John Belushi as Cal, and mm-hmm. then um, what Gilbert Morris isn't that his name? Gilbert Morris would be your um, your uh, Jay. Okay. Yeah, you could have just you could have just gone and then like like Gilda Radner is. Uh, as Trish, I mean, it would have been. Well, we will we will we will talk about Trish in a second. I yeah, let's, so let's talk about Trish. So my Trish, um, I mean, Catherine Keener is such perfect casting for this because she's she doesn't belong to the group. I mean, she's not a, a comedian in that in that sense. I mean, she's funny, but she doesn't doesn't belong. 
and but is still so charming in in everything that she does. So as I was going through a bunch of pictures, a bunch of names, I came across someone like, wow, she's the right age and actually kind of looks like Katherine Keener. And once I thought about that, I couldn't get it out of, get it out of my head. And that's Sarah Chalk, who was uh, from like Scrubs, and she was um, one of the the uh, the blonde daughters in Roseanne. She was in How I Met Your Mother for a little while. She kind of looks like Katherine Keener. And once I saw her and saw that she was like in that, because uh, Trish is in that like that forty to forty five range. And once I saw that she was the right age and how much she looked like Katherine Keener, I couldn't get her out of my head and it just fit. So that's why I went Sarah Chalk. All right. Uh, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is either. I didn't watch Roseanne. From Scrubs or, or the, the, she's in how I met your mother. Look up a picture. You'll, you'll recognize her. All right. Well, I went with, uh, this is this is probably pretty indulgent, but I, I, I had two in my mind that are around that right age, and they are similarly distinguished actors that are coming into a genre that is not in their wheelhouse, and they are both among my favorites, Julie Delpy or Uma Thurman, and I feel like both of them would be a really interesting uh, pairing with Bill Hader. Because I, I feel like there would be that kind of, like, clash of, like, she's really dramatic, but it's also kind of funny because of how haters reacting. And I, I couldn't choose between the two, so I just said both. Okay, so Julie, Julie Duffy is a terrible pick. But Uma Thurman is sort of intriguing because you could probably have Maya Hawke play the Cat Dennings role. But isn't ah, Uma Thurman might be a little old at this point, though. Uh, but, I you know... I, I don't know. I don't know how, how old Keener was. She probably was older than uh, Carell. She's like 43, 44. And I think she was 44 and, and C. Carell was 42. Um, so Uma is probably older than that. Yeah. All right, Zach, what do you got? All right, so for 1980, here's the thing about Catherine Keener, okay? She brought respectability to this movie. When we listen to the DVD commentary, Catherine Keener is not there, okay? She's doing important shit, all right? She does not have time for their stupid DVD commentary. And they talk a lot about how they were very intimidated on set with Catherine Keener. I mean, you listen to Jonah Hill talk. He said that it was the most frightening moment of his life when he had to go on to set and improvise with Catherine Keener. So you have to pick someone with some sense of, of respectability. Loki, I feel like Ebert gave it three and a half stars because Catherine Keener was in the cast, and I don't think he's ever given thumbs down to a Catherine Keener movie. So in 1980, I think the most respectable actress who could have possibly been in a project like this, who brought leverage and sincerity to the role, but also could be funny, was Jane Fonda. Right age... Could could be comic in certain situations. Made this movie legitimate. I thought you were going to say Diane Keaton. Uh, not old enough though. I I, I actually thought, you were thought going about Faye Dunaway. I thought about both of those actually because they're both Oscar winners from the seventies. But I don't think either of them are old enough. I, I think you have to have someone who's a little bit more mature. Jane Fonda would have been I think forty three or forty four at the time in nineteen eighty. Uh, she would have. I I think she could have nailed it. That would have been perfect. Yeah. That's probably what Faye Dunaway was around that time. No, Faye, Faye Dunaway was a little younger, I, I, I believe, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Faye See, Dunaway, all I know is we need to do this. Clyde? I mean, she, Faye Dunaway would have been 39 in 1980, so that, I, I guess it's possible, but I maybe. I don't know. I like Jane Fonda more. All I know That's is we point. need to do this 
on the whole next time or or when whenever it fits again of going back instead of going forward for a recasting we need to do that because that just thinking about that is just blowing my mind right now that's just awesome <laughs> that's a perfect that's a perfect movie to do it on too what a missed opportunity that we all could have done well done zach well done hey thank you all right well, let's uh, let's hop into. Uh, oh no, no, we had a couple other... more. We had a couple oh. more. I thought. Oh, oh right? yeah, a couple more. Sorry. Oh, yeah, uh, I, I didn't have any more. more, but you guys go for it. I had a couple more, but Todd, I'll defer to you if you want. Uh, so the Beth I came up with was Sydney Sweeney. Uh, she was in Euphoria and Once Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood. She's a Handmaid's super... Tale too. <laughs> yeah, and she's super hot, and I feel like that'd be a good role for. Her. I also have Jenna Fisher getting upgraded from just a non-speaking role in the movie to being Nikki. Played by yeah, Leslie Mann. That's good. I like and it. And my Paula, I, uh, I mean, it's another completely indulgent, and you got to think outside the box, so I went with Faruza Balk. I haven't seen her in forever. <laughs> okay, we'll forgive I, that that one. You got two out of three. That's good. I almost I almost went with Elizabeth Banks for Trish. She's the right age now. Yeah, that's, that's not bad. Again, Faruza Balk, I've never heard her say anything funny in my life, so I, my... Might be a bit of a stretch. Well, she—I don't know. She's funny in the Water Boy. She's funny in the Water Boy, yeah. Okay, forgot about the Water Boy. All right, I—I I nailed these. Okay, you ready for these? This is gonna blow your mind, Terry. <laughs> 1980 casting. Beth. The obvious pick is Oscar winner Goldie Hawn. Fun. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. It's perfect. Is, that, is she too old at that point? I don't think so. Is no, she? That's good. It should be good. I think. I, I think she's a bit early thirties. I think. I think that's fine. Okay. Nikki, Stalker Channing. Okay. Maybe no. Okay. This Sorry. is the one of the whole cast that I recast in nineteen eighty. I'm most proudest of. I actually originally had this actress cast as Trish, but I decided that she would be better in the role of Paula, and that is Lily Tomlin. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Good. Yeah. That's good. Goldie Hawn would have been so have... 35 in 1980. I, I think that's too old. I she was in Private Benjamin that year. I mean, I think she would have played that role perfectly fine, but whatever. Okay. So you'd have, you'd have Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin in a movie together, and now they're in Grace and Frankie together. And they were in... I mean, that's like... Not, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and it would have been written and directed by Paul Mazursky. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> uh, good times, good times. That that's a lot of fun. We should do that again. Okay, uh, let's move on. So our first category always is highest war. Who was the most irreplaceable member of this cast? Todd, going to you first. I mean, because I really couldn't come up with anybody for him, I said Seth Rogen, because when he's in a movie, he is, like, by default the highest war, because he can't be replaced. Like, that'd be a really fun, like, power rankings to do sometime, actually. It'd be, like, the top five people that are, like, most irreplaceable just by appearing. And, yeah, I Cal is a funny character. It should have been a side character, but I feel like they kept putting him in more scenes because he was so funny, because Seth Rogen is so good at uh, ad-libbing and everything. I, I I can't imagine the movie without him. Wasn't just the year before that he was Ron Burgundy's cameraman? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, that that is a good call. That is a good call. Zach, who do you got? Yeah, I think Seth Rogen. But here's the problem, okay? I feel like that's Monday morning quarterbacking a little bit. I, I think that is with the luxury of hindsight. We knew what happened to Seth Rogen's career. It's very easy in 2020 to say that he was the most indispensable member of this cast. So, again, I, I guess I agree with Todd. I'm going to go with someone else, though, that in 2005 I think would have been the riskier selection, and that is Jane Lynch. She's not in a lot of scenes in this movie. You already mentioned her, Terry. But, oh, my God. The, what, three scenes, three or four scenes she's in absolutely kills it. I mean, gets on the court, drills the threes, is amazing in this movie, kind of like the way she was also in Best in Show, the Christopher Guest movie, but in a different role and spectacular. No one else you could cast in that role in 2005. Yeah, I was actually reading through the IMDb trivia, and it said that um, that role was originally supposed to be a man, and then it was uh, Steve Carell's wife, Nancy Carell, who was in the movie. She's the health clinic counselor. She's also the real estate agent that Michael Scott ends up dating in the office. Yeah, Yeah. Um, She said, what about Jane Lynch? And and then it was done. She was it. And, And yeah, the rest is history. That was one of the names I had written down. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go a little more conventional here and go Catherine Keener. Um, I, you, I mean, we talked about maybe in some ways she could be the most replaceable because she's the one that's not a comedian. However, she is so perfect in the fact that she, she is funny, but she does bring a certain, a certain, uh, gravitas to the role. Um, and she is so charming and likable at the same time. Uh, she's impossible not to love in this role, and um, I think it. Whenever you hear anybody talk about this movie that was involved in it, they say this movie actually became a a, a legit movie when Catherine Keener was cast, and it was one of those where where they said we would love to get someone like Catherine Keener, and then they found out that they could actually get Catherine Keener. So, I I mean, uh, for me, that's that's the highest war. I mean, you, you you don't get much better than than that. So uh, so that's what I'm going with. It's a good pick. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go to the other end of things now. Worst performance. Zach, you're first. Okay, I'm gonna go. Now, I don't want to dig on this per, this person because I felt like her contributions to the movie probably were an overall positive. It's just that she couldn't. She couldn't stop smiling, and she couldn't stop laughing, and that is the character of Waxing Lady, played by Miki Mia, and, you know, again, I, I, I don't want to diss on her, because she's, she's good in the movie, I'm sure she's fine. In the DVD commentary, they talk about how they looked for actresses slash waxing ladies, and there's a big, long, like, five-minute segment about, you know, how actresses have become uh, not waitresses, but they become waxing ladies in 2004, you know, uh, Hollywood. Very funny riff. Anyway, um, she can't stop laughing, and even Steve Carell says, why are you smiling? And, uh, yeah, you just have, you can't, you can't smile like that, but she is really charming. There's no bad performance in this movie. Let's get real. Okay, she's, I, I, I hate to diss on her, but she's the only possible performance you could say is a bad performance. Ah, uh, you pussy. All of them were laughing in that scene, though. <laughs> True. 
I, I would say she might have the worst delivered line in the whole movie, and that's the clear all my appointments for this afternoon. It's like, okay, you were trying way too hard to act in that moment. Yeah, there we go. I'll that, take that. That's, that that's a that's a good call. That's a good call. I did not go with that. I went with kind of it's kind of a hindsight pick, just because it was distracting. I didn't. I forgot he was in this movie. Kevin Hart is in this movie. And it was like, as soon as I saw him, like, wait, Kevin Hart's in this movie? I completely forgot about that. He's got that one scene where he's yelling at, at Jay. And and I, I'm saying it's the worst performance because hindsight, he's just doing Kevin Hart. I mean, that's all he's doing. He's he, It's just like, Kevin Hart, just go in there and yell at that guy for a little while. That was one of his first happens. things he ever did, though. Yeah, I know. I know. But that's why I'm saying it's a hindsight pick. Because Zach said... There, there are no bad performances, so I'm going with the one that, that took me out of the movie for a second, because it's like, wait, I, I forgot he was in this picture, and so uh, that's what I'm going with. Alright, uh, I went with, it pains me to say it, but Elizabeth Banks, because oh. I feel like she is weird and fake and stale, and it's kind of like an awkward performance, and an awkward character, and I don't know, it... I, I don't know, was she supposed to be high, like, the whole movie? Because I, when you said she couldn't stop smiling, I thought you were talking about her. I was like, I don't know <laughs> what she was going for, but I don't know if it's right. <laughs> wow. Dissing on your own, man. It's like shitting in your own house, right? What's the expression, don't shit where you live? <laughs> shit where you eat? You always, oh, yeah. you, you always shit in your house, you moron. <laughs> How's that beer, Zach? It's 12%. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, let's move on to uh, the uh, the Big Tim Favorite Minor Character Award. Uh, and there's so many good ones in this. There's oh, so yeah. many good ones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that this is this is just chock full of great minor characters. I mean, you could you could go with like the entire um, the entire like uh, health center scene and go with every yeah. character in there, uh, but I'm gonna go with one that I think is a, an unrated um, scene only, and that is Judd Apatow as the uh, as the um, Op- uh, hotline the, operator. The, yeah, the hotline operator <laughs> that Steve Carell calls that Andy calls from Bombay. <laughs> from Bombay uh, about he's you know I I was told to call if I have an erection that lasts more than four hours great scene (laughs) that should have been left in the movie yeah it should have been it should have been it's so good it's so good and he is so perfect in that and and once you once you know it's Judd Apatow you're like oh yeah yeah I can't I can't unhear that being Judd Apatow now but if you didn't know you wouldn't know that it's him so that that's my favorite minor character and just the advice he gives him is just awesome so yeah Todd. Um, I wanted to go with Nikki, but I feel like she's got her scene is a little bit too long because I think she's my favorite part of the whole movie. But uh, so I went with Jordan <laughs> Masterson as Mark because I wanted like at least one more line from that guy. He's like, "Dude, teach me." Like, I mean, <laughs> I, how I want like a spinoff movie with him and Marla. Uh, you know, like I want I want this movie from their perspective at some point because I, I mean that guy. I feel like he was capable of being really funny. He had one line, and I was like. That, that's I, I mean, I've quoted that in my life like ten times. <laughs> R- random, random side reference that that uh, becomes ironic later on is uh, you have Marla played by Kat Dennings, 
Um, and then, and her mother is Catherine Keener. And at one point, Catherine Keener, uh, at, or, um, says to Andy that she would dress as Thor for him. And then Kat Dennings ends up being in love with Thor in another movie. So Andy is also reading Thor versus Iron Man, like comic. There's, I don't know. There's a lot of weird, (laughs) I, I, I pieced it together from that angle. (laughs) This also, I just realized that this is this is the the uh, second Apatow movie we've talked about that uh, Paul Rudd references. Everybody loves Raymond. Yeah, I never noticed that before. <laughs> All right, Zach, who's your favorite minor character? I mean, in the words of you know Murray and Clueless, are you bitches blind or something? Like this is the most obvious pick in the entire universe. In fact, we should rename the Big Tim Award in honor of this person and that is jonah hill as the ebay customer i mean come on like how how much more do you need in terms of a random character who is in one scene of the movie to take over this movie he is in one scene and then he is in the last scene of the movie like clearly apatow realized what a what a freaking cult figure he would be in this movie buying those diamond plaid shiny disco shoes with the fish in them and then putting up an argument with katherine keener because he just wants to buy them man i mean can you feel that like i can feel the anger in that scene i can feel the frustration in that scene I, and I get that this is a pick with the luxury of hindsight because we know Jonah Hill became the two-time Oscar-nominated actor who worked with Martin Scorsese, but he's amazing in that scene. He's perfect, and I, y'all bitches are blind or something. Like, come on, this is this is this is the definition of a Big Tim character. That that is that yes, that is a great one. Too. He doesn't even have a name. He, he's the eBay customer. You can't really argue with the ones that we said either, though. I mean. yeah he's ebay customer that yeah and it's all the yeah did you notice all the platform sequin shoes with the fish in them yeah did you notice all the people that are in super bad in this movie like i never noticed that i didn't i didn't even know that jay's girlfriend is uh is (laughs) tiffany the uh liquor store oh there's a conspiracy theory i didn't know her name's mindy mindy we've uh, mentioned her on this podcast before and uh, the floor buffering guy, and the guy who's like, get the f*** off the road, virgin! Like, he's in the party. Like, I'm like, why are all these guys just popping up? Like, I had no idea they were in this movie, and I've seen both of them, like, a lot of times. <laughs> and obviously Seth and Jonah. I'm probably missing one. Okay, I'm, ju- I'm just scrolling through IMDb. Did you know that Andy's mother is played by Phyllis from uh, The Office? When is Andy's mother in the movie? I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't remember Andy's mother. I don't remember it either. But Maybe it says uncredited. Scene. Andy's mother is Phyllis Smith. She it was a like cutscene to like the room in one of his flashbacks. Does he? I don't, I don't know. I don't she does. I don't she know. doesn't even. Yeah. She, she doesn't even be a flashback. She didn't even make the unrated cut. That's kind of depressing. Speaking of super bad, did you Todd? Did you ever notice the similarities between um, the uh, actress who plays the toe sucking girl? who's played by yeah. Carla Galgo, and, and, well, you know what I'm going to say, right? <laughs> yeah. The, uh, uh, Evan's girlfriend, uh, Evan's girlfriend. What the hell's her name? What the, what the f*** is her name? I can't remember her name either. I throw, <laughs> I wrote it down. I can't find Becca. it anymore. Becca. Yeah, she's the exact same character. <laughs> I, I, I know, they have the same, the same line delivery, the same face. 
I'm like, I, yeah. I feel like that scene is really similar too. <laughs> they they stole that scene from Four Year Old Virgin to put into a Superbad, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I want to go with a uh, with uh, a new category that we haven't done before, but oh, I think shit. it's very fitting to do in this one. Um, best scene. Best, best scene. scene. Best scene. I, I'll go first, since I since I just sprung this on you guys. I, I didn't warn them about this. I'm just going with it. And my best scene for this movie that that I, I think is, like, just the perfect scene every time I watch this is the final scene of the movie. As soon as Steve Carell starts singing... I mean, the from the first time I watched this, and he starts singing the age, Dawning of the Age of Aquarius, I'm just like, this is the perfect way to end this movie. Because it is so far out there, and so random, but it is just so perfect. There is no other way to end this movie. It is like one of the best endings of a movie, like, of this century so far, is... is Dawning of the Age of Aquarius, them all singing around, what, what? They're basically singing around a midsummer pole, right? And, <laughs> yep. and, and, and um, you have you have shirtless Romany Malco, Seth Rogen, and Paul Rudd dancing with pretty much every minor character we've mentioned doing something behind them. It's, it's perfect. It's perfect. So that is my best scene, is as soon as he starts singing through to the end. All right, which one of you is ready with one? I, I have one. All right, Zach, what do you got? So this scene was so good that I actually showed it to my students. Um, <laughs> it, it was a little R-rated. I feel unfortunate about that, but my students had this idea for their homecoming video this year. We make the homecoming video every year. They wanted to do a speed date homecoming video. The speed date scene from this movie is magnificent, okay? Like... It, it shows all the actors at their height. It, I, I, you know, actually what I told my students was you need to have the buzzer from 40-year-old virgin. You need to ha that's how you do a, a speed date scene. They're like, what? What's 40-year-old virgin? What are you talking about buzzer? I'm like, okay, we got to screw this. We got to watch this scene right now, okay? And you know what? <laughs> I mean, the, this younger generation doesn't quite understand the effect of this movie had on our generation. But that scene holds up so well. And honestly, my second place Big Tim Award winner has to be Gina. I mean, Gina should have had her own movie. And low-key, I kind of agree with Seth Rogen. She was kind of the one that was the hottest in the whole scene. <laughs> You're going to think I'm crazy. Gina! Gina. <laughs> uh... One of us needs to name our fantasy football team Dr. Magglestorm or whatever he, whatever he puts. Montalbom, yes. That's a perfect fantasy football team name. And, and, well, and the other great part about that scene is the, the, the reveal of who Amy is. Yes. And the actual relationship there. <laughs> well, I didn't know that, so I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Todd, what do you got as a favorite scene uh, or I best have, scene? I have two in my head. One of them is is kind of silly, and that's when uh, Jay's watching Dawn of the Dead and talking to Andy about whether he's attractive or not. 
I, I think that's, that's hilarious because scene. he's reacting to what's on the screen and he's having a conversation at the same time and it's always in the most awkward and outrageous moment. I, I really like that. And, and the other one is when Andy uh, first meets Beth because David Caruso in Jade has got to be the most Young. obscure reference that, like, in any mainstream <laughs> comedy I've ever heard. But I've seen the movie and that is probably the best impression Steve Carell has ever given. And... <laughs> I, I, I think that scene is just brilliant. Like, it's perfectly written. One, one line to the next line, it just completely flows. It's like 45 seconds and out, and it just, like, leaves its mark. I, I love that scene. That, that's a yeah, great call. A great, and I love how he pick. just know. Uh, he's like, okay, I know what you're going for. Okay, I got it. I got it. And, and yeah, anytime they're watching anything. I mean, the the also the, the other scene where they're watching Born Identity and uh, talking about how Matt Damon's a Streisand. That's a that's a great scene too. I think too. he's rocking the shit in this one. <laughs> if I if I were to go with the second place uh, one, I would go with uh, the scene between Andy and Paula, where um, where uh, she she says the offer still stands. She's like, I'm very discreet, but I'll haunt your dreams, and then sniffs him. I mean that that <laughs> that scene. I mean it's it's oh. Shows just how perfect Jane Lynch is. I mean that that's just so so great, and 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 Steve Carell just total straight man in that moment too. How how can you be the straight man when Jane Lynch is doing that? I I have no clue. Okay, that was a that was a good category. We we made to do that one more. I was gonna ask right. what your favorite song is in the movie, but obviously we know Terry's answer. Like there there are a lot yeah. of like really good song transitions mm-hmm. in here. Like like. It, it, the heat of the moment song when he's like uh, when he's on his bike chasing after Trish like that is the perfect song for that like you know minute long scene where he's like riding his bike I don't know like th- I love the soundtrack in this movie my, my second place uh, favorite song would be uh, Get Your Freak On yep there you go <laughs> which again you, I mean you already mentioned that, that that scene's just amazing but yeah Zach, do you have a favorite song? Yes, I like the Anchors Array that he plays on his tuba when he's uh, walking around his house. <laughs> uh, or what, what's the song he sings karaoke to? Um, oh, it's Oh Pretty Lady. Hi, pretty lady. <laughs> like Korn did a, a remake of that song, and it's actually pretty awesome. And I know that I, I know it from that, that movie more than I know the original song. <laughs> All right. Okay, biggest stick man. Todd, who do you got? Uh, this one I thought was easy. It's got to be uh, Mooj, uh, the old man that works at their <laughs> store. Like, you know, because life is not about cock and balls and rusty trombone and dirty Sanchez or Cincinnati bow tie or shit stained balls. I don't know. He's the most underrated iron chef of pounding Vosh in the whole movie. And I, I feel like he, out of all the characters, he probably is the one that's getting the most ass. But uh, he's, I, I don't know, he's, but he's old, so. In his day and currently, I think he's still the biggest stick. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Zach. <laughs> um, I think the biggest stick man in this movie has to be Dan, who is getting married to the woman that is holding the bachelorette party because she, uh, Dan apparently gets it in with the woman he's getting married to and the Leslie Mann character and some other hoe that he cheated on the Leslie Mann character with. So that's at least three women. I mean, you know, Raj, sure, you could, you know, but how much do we know is actually apocryphal? Like, Dan is clearly getting it in. In fact, Andy should have probably consulted Dan for some advice about getting it in. 
Uh, that's that's not bad. Dan uh, rhymes I, with I, man I, and men jerk off, and he was a jerk off. <laughs> uh, I've got I've got two. I'm gonna go with. I I think one of the obvious choices here too is Jay. Um, I mean, he's he has so many issues in this movie, but I mean the fact that you know the the whole scenario of him of how he ends up breaking up with his girlfriend because he forgot that he still had his condom on from the night before. And then the fact that he still has a key to Beth's apartment. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you just Seven know, he, yeah, he's, he's kind of ridiculous. And then the other one is Beth. I mean, <laughs> she, she's, if you're going to go with a girl, um, there, you gotta, you gotta think that too. Um, Cal also just the fact that he's going for Gina and uh, and then he's the one that sticks around with Beth uh, in in the bathtub. It's and he's observing because yeah. he's an I am a novelist. <laughs> uh, I love the one scene where I actually see him typing his novel. That's yeah, <laughs> apparently there were more scenes in the movie with him talking about his novel, but they were cut out if you listen to the commentary. Oh, that's too bad. All right, biggest douchebag, Todd. Uh, I went with Haziz, you know, because every line he says, he's just an asshole. Like, hey, villain Grace, get back to work. Or, you know, Andy, we're going to get you some punani. Uh, he's, I don't know. I, I can't stand that character. He's funny, kind of, but I mean, he's, he's an asshole. He's a douchebag. Funny how? How am I funny? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and there also is the, the, other, the other side of that, that he's currently in prison for attempted murder, so... There's there's that whole part of it too, which you know kind of seals the deal. Um, my my biggest douchebag. I'm gonna go with uh, the father at the restaurant played by Steve Banos. I was watching this movie, so they go to Benihana on the date, um, which apparently is the same Benihana they go to in the office. Um, and they're sitting there, and the dad asks the wait or tells the waitress, "Hey, get all your people over here. Sing happy birthday to my kid." And then the just the patronizing look he has on his face as they're doing, I'm like, dude, this guy's a douchebag. Um, just and that was like automatic. That was my first initial reaction to him. And the other one I'm gonna go with is um, I don't know who he is, but it's the guy who yells at Andy from his car to get out of the road and say, like, "Hey, Virgin, get out of the road!" When he's just gone through the billboard in the car, that's I'm like, one. dude, that's that's, a, that's such a douche move. So he's he's another big douchebag, and he looks like you know the a douche frat boy in that in, when he pops his head out too. So those are my two. That's why he's in Superman. All right, Zach. That yeah. <laughs> that was a great pick. The the guy in the road. Uh, I don't know if I can really improve on that. I don't know. Uh, I think Seth's father is pretty much a douchebag. You know, calling out his son for having a small penis. And uh, making fun of his looks and, uh, you know, his Jufro. I think he's, he's, he's a douchebag. We went to Why don't you just say Seth is the douchebag? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a problem with Seth. It's Seth's, it's Seth's father, you know. But... Uh... All right. Uh... How about, uh, who would Nicolas Cage play? Oh, I have a good answer for this. Can you start with me? <clears throat> Go for it, Zach. Okay. Clearly, Nicolas Cage in this movie would play Michael McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that's really good. fits in this movie, honestly. I think early Nick Cage, maybe like 1985, Nick Cage could have played Cal. But I, other than that, I, I don't think he is a good part in this. He does have a good part in this, in this movie. I, I've got a good one. I think I think Nicolas Cage, if you know he's going to be in your movie, uh, you uh, you turn Paula back into a man and you make that Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very discreet, but I'll haunt your dreams. I can, <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> Those lines wouldn't be the same if it was a guy. But see, no, here's... they wouldn't be. But he, I, I, I could see him playing that part. I think, like Todd, you could, you could also make the inverse case that he could play every character in this movie. I mean, he could definitely play Andy. That's not a problem at all. I think he could play Cal. I think he could play David. I think he could play pretty much anyone in this movie, depending on what year you're talking about. Nicholas Cage. I suppose you, you could have Nick. You could have Nicholas Cage play the transvestite prostitute. Yeah, <laughs> that would be that would be interesting. Okay, uh, any flaws? Anything outdated? Okay, I have some. Uh, so this is a timeline issue. So um, they open at or they close their store at nine p.m. Like when the hell did that poker game start? Because Andy inevitably like or he he drove or rode all the way home and rode back. And it says on his fridge that he's scheduled to go to bed at 10 o'clock. So you would think that it takes him that long to maybe get home and go to bed. Or play video games and go to bed. So he's got to get all the way back. So if they started this game at like midnight, then how are they all back to work at 10 a.m. the next day? Especially when Jay ends up leaving there to go meet up with his mistress. Like, this got to be like 3, 4 a.m. Like, I mean, you got to think like a janitor or something's going to be showing up at the shopping center at that point. Like, I don't know. I don't see how... When did this poker game start? Like, they make it seem like it's going to be like 10 o'clock, but it can't be. The store closed at 9. And the other issue I had was... Okay, so when Seth Rogen says, uh, you know, I had a weekend, and they go through that whole thing, this is a, a retail store. Like, how, how are they letting both of their stock guys off the entire weekend? Because it's not like on that Friday night, like, they both just... Or, like, after they got off work, they went and did that because Andy spent the whole day doing his egg salad sandwich. And Cal went all the way down to Mexico. They were off the whole weekend. Like, they're in retail. That's when they sell shit. I I don't know. I, I guess maybe I don't grasp how retail stores work, maybe. But, I mean, I, that doesn't add up to me. Maybe they have a weekend That's, crew. That is a... No, I, that is a great point. I had never thought of that before, Todd. I, I worked at a at an office depot, and I think one of the most underrated things about this movie is how accurate it gets retail. Like, you can watch the movie for the four-year-old virgin, whatever, but, like, the, the dynamic between those characters is dead on. So, I, I would replicate. Why why aren't they working on the weekend? That's a good question. Yeah, it's got to be their busiest time. Did someone at Office Depot give themselves a, a public uh, colonoscopy? I want to bring up that scene later. It's a great... It's a, well, that was All a different right, category. Well, Zach, do you have anything, uh, any flaws, anything outdated? Yeah, I also had a flaw about the poker game, which is that... What the, what the hell? Are they bringing their own drinks to the poker game? Like, that was one of my trivia questions. Like, where are they getting these drinks from? Like, they all are drinking something different, and... I don't understand why an orange Fanta would be available unless Andy brought it on his bike. So I don't or was know. in like the vending machine. That's a yeah, that's a possibility. But then there, you know, I don't know where the beer came from. Um, 
I had a problem with Beth's apartment because it looks unusually ornate. Like for someone who works at the Barnes and Noble or the local bookstore, like her apartment looks like it is like just, it's got gold trimmings all around, this huge massive bed, this huge bathtub. Like Her friend is so shiny. Yeah, and and lest we forget the fish in the background too, that looks like the fish from the sequin shoes that uh, Jonah Hill wants to buy. But uh, alas, I will let that one slide. I think the biggest issue I have with this movie in terms of flaws goes back to the timeline issue, which is that when David brings over his box of porn, and actually, well, okay, David brings over his box of porn, and he talks about Boner Jams 03. David, at that point, if we were to understand the chronology, is still dating Amy at that time. So if he is having as much sex as he says with Amy back in 2003, two years before this movie came out, why is he making a mixtape of porn? Well, because, because they, they, they were acting it. out. They, yeah, they acted out yeah. the... Uh, what was it? Which one was it that they were acting out? I can't remember. Oh, Harry's uh, Water. The Harry Potter. Yeah, that one. I, success- I, I take back everything I just said. <laughs> you- well, you're, and, you're right. and he was only—he only was dating Amy for four months. There's, there's that <laughs> side of it too. <laughs> I think that's my favorite revelation of the whole movie is he's—he's he's all bummed out about this two years afterwards, and they were only dating for four months. Um, I, I, I didn't necessarily find any flaws, but the outdated—and I, I have to mention this because it's just kind of sad—is the fact that the the a store like Smart Tech is not necessarily that prevalent anymore which which is sad i mean i mean this is supposed to be like what a circuit city or a best buy or something like that and i love those stores like i remember like in college you know if i had a hard day i would just go wander the dvd aisles at best buy for like an hour and end up leaving there with like 50 dollars worth of bargain dvds and that's populated most of my dvd shelf and, and the fact that that doesn't necessarily exist in the same way anymore, or those stores are closing all because of online stuff, it, it just makes me sad. So that's that's kind of outdated. And I, I read that um, they found that spot for Smart Tech, they found a, a Staples that went out of business, and they renovated it to be their Smart Tech. And the eBay store across the street actually was a legit thing, and they wrote it into the script when they found out it was across the street from their lo- location. That that seems like something they would do. All right, conspiracy theory time. I have an amazing conspiracy theory. You ready for this? Go. For it. My conspiracy theory is that this is a a futuristic sequel. To the Toy Story franchise. You have Andy. With his toys. Hanging out. All alone. Hasn't met anybody because he's still obsessed with his toys. Still a virgin. Working at a tech store. This is a sequel to Toy Story. That's my conspiracy theory. And, And here's where it came from. His name tag in the speed dating scene. His name tag... The lettering is written exactly the same as the bottom of Woody's shoe. The end's backward. Go back and look at it. The end's not backwards, but it everything else is like the exact same handwriting, including the like uppercase, lowercase Y thing. I looked at him like, dude, that looks like Toy Story. This guy's from Toy Story. 
That's what I'm going with. That's my conspiracy theory. Wow. That's fantastic. That's a great theory. <laughs> Thank you. Never, Thank you. never crossed my mind. <laughs> it all, it, it was all the handwriting on his name tag during the speed dating scene. You got to go check it out. Go rewind that. All right. Anybody else? Uh, well, so the picture that's on Andy's bed, I don't know who it is. It's supposed to be maybe his dad or something. <laughs> But it looks really suspiciously similar to the picture above his toilet of the the guy with the, the tiger. But it also looks suspiciously similar to the baseball card in Meet the Fockers of Ben Stiller's like doppelganger. I don't know. I don't know what that says. I just I want to know who that's supposed to be. Like, why does he have a picture of whoever that is on his bed? Like, next to all his toys. I don't know. Why does Andy randomly own, like, ten candles that he sets up around his bed? How does he just automatically have all that? No one owns ten candles. Just randomly. No bachelor owns ten candles. Or 47, you know, G.I. Joes or whatever it was. Well, yeah, there's that, too. The other thing I thought was really was really funny is he's got his whole gaming chair and everything. Yet when, um, when Cal and... David are over. They're playing his N64 Mortal Kombat. I thought that was pretty great. Cal holds the controller really weird, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's an N64 controller. There's no right way to hold that thing. That's true. All right. Zach, do you have anything? Uh, not as good as the Toy Story theory. That's, that's, that's pretty interesting. I thought it was interesting that Trish's condom jar had all different sizes of condoms, and yet she says that it was her ex-husband's jar of condoms. Like, what is, I, what does that mean? I mean, that's, that's kind of strange to think about. Um, and then I also thought it was, uh, kind of interesting. Let me see. I had one more. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where did they find the shirt with David's face on it that he's wearing <laughs> when he plays the video game? If you listen to the DVD commentary, Paul Rudd says that it was just a random shirt that he pulled out. But, like, what wardrobe director has a random shirt of Paul Rudd on a shirt <laughs> hanging around out there? There's something suspicious uh... about that. It's almost like the Jeff Beebe shirt in Almost, almost Famous. Don't ask me. I'm just one of the out-of-focus guys. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's... Yeah, I always wondered about that, too. I thought I, It's such a randomly awesome detail, the fact that he's wearing a shirt with himself on it. Yeah. And it really looks like a mugshot. It really does. Well, Paul Rudd says in the commentary that it, 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 it was the picture that they took when they were getting their smart tech ID cards. But... <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> and so we put it on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> there's more. There's a story there. I just don't know I what it I is. Wish you could, I wish you could buy that shirt. That would be amazing. Would you rather own that shirt or the Jeff Beebe shirt? Or the Frost Canyon shirt from Sideways? That's, oh, that's the real question. That, that, is a, that is a good question. Uh, that, I, I don't know. I may have to put that up as a poll on Twitter. Yeah. Which shirt would you rather wear? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Paul Rudd's wardrobe in this movie is pretty lit. 
I mean, we're we're getting it to MVP. I think it's a borderline MVP case for for the wardrobe in his movie, but we'll we'll just move on. He's well, he's amazing. In that scene, Seth Rogen is wearing a public to. enemy shirt. Yeah, and and he also at the speed date thing, he's shirt. wearing his shirt inside out. It's like they were that worried about what Andy had that, but Cal wears a shirt inside out. I don't know. That, that was kind of <laughs> weird. At the same time, so worried about what Andy's wearing. I was thinking about this. Does Andy ever actually wear the shirt he's wearing in the poster? Like, in the movie poster. Mm, good question. Does he ever actually wear that shirt? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think he does. I mean, it's a perfect shirt for the poster, but I don't think he ever actually wears it. Well, then it's again, good... in the trailer, I'm pretty sure that Leslie Mann was at the speed dating thing. Ooh. <laughs> and she's, she has theory. a deleted scene. Of her there too. Oh, okay. I don't know. Leslie, Does she remember him? That'd be really funny if he, she didn't even remember him. Yeah, she did. Yeah, that was it. She didn't remember him. She said the same thing. She said she he had kind eyes, again, <laughs> and he's like, "What's going on here?" <laughs> Leslie That's Mann awesome. in the commentary is clearly uncomfortable with Stormy Daniels being cast in this movie. <laughs> that made for some nice uncomfortable moments in the commentary. Oh, I bet. All right, LVP MVP. Let's start to wrap this up. Uh, who wants to go first here? I'll go first. I don't uh, know if it's LVP more than the just like biggest loser, but I'm going with Michael McDonald because <laughs> I'm with I'm with David. If I hear Yamo be there one more time, I'm gonna Yamo burn this place to the ground. I feel the exact same way. <laughs> uh, yeah. Good call. All right, Zach, LVP? LVP for me is Jim Carrey because I watched this movie called Liar, Liar, and the message was <laughs> don't lie, and that was a smart movie. That was a smart movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that line pops into my head more times than I would like to admit. Why does um, that make him LVP? <laughs> I don't know. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> uh... I I had so much trouble. I I don't even know who I'm gonna go with with LVP. Um, my uh, my LVP is uh, my LVP is uh, VCRs because you don't want to you don't want to buy a VCR. It's gonna you want to buy the VCR DVD combo. That's what you want to buy. It's like uh, buying an so, eight track player. Uh, yeah, or a laser disc. Yet, yet the entire box of porn is VHS tapes. <laughs> but that—that's all I got. I've—I've sure. I've got nothing. There are no LVPs in this movie. What about MVP? Todd. Uh, I'll go with Romani Malko because he is my favorite character by far in this, and it's—I think it's the best ensemble of 2005 because of characters like that. Like, I think it's a top ten supporting actor performance. And yeah, he's doing a lot of Martin Lawrence things, but like, I, I think he is amazing. Every scene, I feel like he's the standout, and he's the only one in the cast that didn't become a star. I mean, with Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen, Elizabeth Banks, Steve Carell, Kevin Hart, Jonah Hill, Mindy Kaling, Kat Dennings, Jane Lynch, he's the only one that didn't become big, and I don't understand why. I think he's really talented, and I, I think he's ma- makes the movie something else, and I don't know. I, 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 I love that character, and he's my MVP. That's because wasn't his follow-up to this the love guru? 
I don't know. Like, I, I've never seen like it. Like, that successfully killed Mike Myers' career. I mean, that... <laughs> Romney Malco stood no chance if he chose that. <laughs> that's true. Uh, that's, a, that's a great call, though. That's a great call. He talks about All in right. the com- commentary how he was a rapper. And, then, and collectively, Seth Rogen and Judd Apatow and Paul Rudd make fun of him. <laughs> All right, Zach. MVP. MVP for me is very clearly one of Kansas City's own shining examples of greatness, and that is Paul Rudd as David. Um, you know, you mentioned favorite scene in the movie. I kind of lied a little bit. Really, the, the scene that is my favorite scene in this movie is when, after the speed dating scene, when David has drank way too much and his shirt is halfway out and he's got the camera in his hand and he's sticking it up his ass. I mean, movies just don't get better, better than that, you know? And then Seth Rogen, you know, attacks him and takes the camera away from him while simultaneously, and they talk about this on the commentary, like putting his hand in his ass. It, it It's an amazing scene. Um, and Paul Rudd goes all the way in every single movie he makes. And he's just, he's, he's perfect in this movie. I think Paul Rudd is the one guy in this movie that also you could have seen play Andy. Like, I could have seen in some scenario where Paul Rudd somehow channels what what Steve Carell brings and is able to do Andy. They also spend a good five minutes of the commentary making fun of how Paul Rudd's upcoming movie stars Michelle Pfeiffer. And it was I'll Never Be Your Woman, but they don't say that the title in the commentary. And they just make fun of the idea that Paul Rudd would actually be in a legitimate movie. With a serious actress like Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, alright. Uh, for me, MVP in this movie, so... Uh, I was having trouble coming up with one. And I'm gonna... Here's what I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go MVP in this movie is all of the women in this movie. Because this movie, being the raunchy guy comedy called 40-Year-Old Virgin... It very, very easily could have turned into this machismo, you know, thing that you look back on now. It's like, oh, that did not age well. But because you have people like Catherine Keener, Elizabeth Banks, Leslie Mann, Jane Lynch, Kat Dennings bringing such strong performances of great characters that hold their own with every man in this movie... um. That's what makes this movie so good. That's what makes it stand the test of time and still hold up today is the fact that you have such great actresses giving such great performances and delivering such great characters that um, either are just as raunchy as the guys or are able to bring some heart to the movie. Um, that's what's that's what makes this movie so great. So my MVP is all the women in the movie because they 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 make this movie the well-rounded, great, amazing comedy it is. Well said. It's the woman. It's like Frances McDormand at the 2017 Oscars. Stand up. Women. Yes. Yes. Okay. Inclusion rider. Inclusion. I was trying to remember what that was. That's what it was. Okay. We are down to our closing quote of the day. I'm going to go first because I won trivia. And my quote of the day is is from the 40-year-old virgin. Well, kind of. Uh, this is the um, translation of the Spanish uh, song that uh, Jane Lynch sings that her uh, her 
Gardener Javier would sing to her as as he uh, as he would uh, make love to her when she was uh, a girl, and she revealed later on that these were um, actually lines that she learned in her high school Spanish class uh, that she just put to a tune that she sang, and this is what it says: "When I clean my room, I can't find anything. Where are you going in such a hurry to the soccer game?" That is the the passionate love song that Javier sings to her. <laughs> I like it. Jane Lynch, MVP. That's what I'm going with. All right. <laughs> Zach, what do you got? I mean, Jane Lynch was my highest war performance. My original um, best or quote from, from this movie was, I'm very discreet, but I'll haunt your dreams. I mean, that line just never <laughs> fails to disappoint. But since that's already been mentioned in this podcast, I'm going to go with the last line of Roger Ebert's three and a half star review of this movie. I did say he liked this movie maybe because of Catherine Keener. But if it wasn't for Roger's review, I probably wouldn't have seen this movie. And that is when he says, uh, you know, at the end of this movie, they're singing the Bollywood version of Age of Aquarius. And then his, his final line is, by then they could have done almost anything and I would have been smiling. And that's the way I feel about this movie and, and the way I feel about this podcast. You know, when you put together a an influx of talent uh regardless of what is said or what is done uh there will be lots of smiles along with 12 percent alcohol yeah well <laughs> needless to say yeah well played well played all right todd wrap us up uh well i have a few one of them is uh a quote that I always think sometimes when I'm like hungover or something to be like let's just go get some f***ing branch toast I've said, I've said that before in my head a lot. Um, and then another one is a, is a line that I almost feel like um, Steve Carell is channeling Dexter in some way. He's like, I may not have had sex, but I could f*** you up. And then he looks yeah, at the look I on like his face. He's like, he's like, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> but my favorite quote in the whole movie is the quote that I, I think I included on my top uh, quotable movies list that I made one time. And it's, uh, yeah. Andy says, I'm not a big hoe runner. And then David says, my uncle used to drive a hoe runner. <laughs> uh, this is one of those where we could have come up with like our a power rankings of our top five quotes of this movie. Very easily. Because it's, it's so quotable. I mean, we, we didn't even mention the, you know how I know you're gay scene. And that's just line after line after line of... I mean, you like Coldplay? I mean, that's it's just so good. You're wearing baby blue track pants. <laughs> and one of the deleted lines from that scene was, I know you're gay because you like Ray Fiennes movies. <laughs> or maybe it was, what, what was you the, like are, Ray Fiennes. What, what, you have a rainbow bumper sticker. What's the line? I like when balls are in my face. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's yeah. gay. That makes that's gay. <laughs> or when you can make an artichoke dick in a in a slice of bread. <laughs> Sourdough bread loaf. Sourdough bread loaf. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Anyways, on that note, we're gonna bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, uh, make sure you subscribe, rate, review. Find us on iTunes. Find us on on uh, Twitter. Find us on Facebook. Uh, we'll be back at you next week with another, uh, another look at some movies and some countdowns and what's been going on 
Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your cross behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.